0: I suspect that most of us would consider ourselves common, ordinary people. When we talk about the, the great people in history, I would guess most of us would not say, that's me. On the other extreme, I doubt if any of us would say, uh, we, are, uh, we are people who have, um, who have been the, the dregs of society either. And I don't think that's only when we talk about just general life. I think that's true when we talk about our spiritual lives. When we talk about the great giants of our faith. Probably most of us think of someone else. When we talk about people who are famous, we think about someone else. And when we talk about people who are infamous to the Christian faith, hopefully we're talking about someone else. We just sort of view ourselves as common, ordinary people. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, there is maybe within us a tendency to find it difficult to identify. We're not Judas, but we're not Moses either. We're just common, ordinary people. Common, ordinary followers of Jesus. When we look at the people who surround the cross, when we think about the people upon whom the shadow of the cross falls. We might not be able to completely identify with Pilate. Or the scribes and the Pharisees. Or even the 12 disciples who spend three plus years in the very presence of Jesus. And we might be tempted to think that's about other people. But I think the gospel writers give us a hint that it's about us, too. In the 15th chapter of Mark, in the 27th chapter of Matthew, we read about Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross for Jesus and they put him on the cross. And then you come to verse 39 of chapter 27, and it talks about people passing by. It says, the people passing by, people walking on the road, these are just common, everyday people like you and me. They weren't in Pilate's Hall. They don't have power in the synagogue or the temple. They aren't Roman soldiers. There's people passing by. You think about passing by, you you think about those places in between destinations. We've started here, we're going on a trip, and we want to get to there. And everything in between is pretty much just places we pass by. Around here, if you're driving to Buffalo or Rochester or Olean or anywhere else, there are lots of little towns that we just pass by. I mean, there are some times where, you know, you drive the same road over and over again. And I stop and think, did we go by that town already? I can't remember now. Every so often I think about people who are driving on 19, who aren't from around here, just going from someplace else to someplace else. I wonder if they ever pass through this town and think, I wonder why anybody would live there. Now, if we live here, you might be asking, why does anybody live here? But, you know, I I just wonder, what do they think about? Because when you drive through town, there's a couple of restaurants on 19, but it's mainly just some houses. And if you didn't know any better, if you never went up the hill and saw the academy and the college, you would wonder, what is it that draws people to live in this place? Because for everybody else, it's just a place passing through, just like the other communities that we pass through. You're just passing by. And there are people in the story of the cross that are just passing by. Now, it's not, uh, the thing is, if people were going to stop here in Houghton, something would have to cause them to stop. Maybe they are they're passing through and all of a sudden they get hungry for Chinese food. There it is, let's go eat. Or for pizza or for subs. Maybe they, it's Memorial Day weekend and they see the, the yard sale down at the fire hall. Let's stop. Or maybe they see something out in somebody's yard that says free and they said, let's stop. Something has to cause people passing through to stop. And with people passing by in, in this road going in and out of Jerusalem, something causes them to stop. And what is it? It's an execution. I've got to be honest, I've been racking my brain all week thinking, who stops for an execution? It makes me think of the, you know, the old West when, when people would gather around when they were having executions and stories of people bringing picnic baskets and making a whole day of this thing. I think, wow, that was a different time, right? They stopped for an execution. Now, it, this road is a, one of the main roads running in and out of Jerusalem, and that's intentional. The Romans have something planned here. You know, for us, when we have executions, we try to to make them as private and away from people as possible. Let's just sort of push that back there and not think about it. The Romans were exactly the opposite. Because they wanted to make a point. You know what happens to people who oppose the Roman government? That kind of thing happens to people. That's why Pilate put the sign King of the Jews on the top of it. You want to be a king? You want to re- try to revolt? This is where you end up. Maybe you want to think twice about that. And these people are, are the city is teeming with pilgrims. It's Passover. This is one of the times of the of the year when people would flock to Jerusalem for this great celebration. And and there are many many people on this road walking by. And they stop. What's fascinating to me is that when they stop, it says they shake their heads and they start hurling insults at Jesus. The shake the head, it's used a variety of times in Scripture. There is this sort of this sense of, I can't believe that, that you would be so stupid as to let yourself get into this place. It's a mocking kind of thing. We read a, a little bit of that in, in uh, Jeremiah's prophecy. This, this interesting story where God says to them, look, I'm warning you. I'm going to give you a chance. And they say, don't waste your breath. We're going to continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. And so this is what the Lord says. Anyone ever heard of such a thing? Even among the pagan nations? My virgin daughter Israel has done something terrible. And you skip down to verse 16. This says, therefore their land will become Desolate. I love this translation, a monument to their stupidity. We probably have a lot. We could probably take a little bit of time and stop and talk about our monuments to stupidity, but we won't. All who pass by will be astonished and will shake their heads in amazement. What would possibly possess you to make such a stupid decision? What kind of a sinful person are you to let yourself get into this place? And they start hurling insults. What confuses me is that these are, probably, these are people passing by. These are not people who have been engaged in the story all the time. And I suspect what happens is they walk up and say, what's going on? And somebody whispers in their ear, well, oh, Jesus, and he's trying to destroy the temple, and he's trying to ruin our lives, and he's he's, he's he's a crazy man. And all of a sudden, the fervor of the crowd starts building, and there's this mob mentality. And now these people who've just been passing by start yelling at Jesus. I mean, isn't that the way a lot of things happen? One of the things that... that concerns me about how we view people who have differing opinions from us is that how quickly we can come to the place of hurling insults at them and mocking them. You see it in the political realm, doesn't matter what end of the spectrum or where on the continuum a person may be. We see it in the spiritual realm with theological discourses. We see it in all kinds of ways. And, and what happens is we begin to dehumanize people. I mean, the only way you can look up at someone hanging from a cross and yell insults at them is if you have dehumanized them. And you've demonized them. And isn't that what we do? We feel justified to say the things, to post the things that we do, because these aren't really. Human beings. And so we say what we want. And I think when the shadow of the cross falls on these people passing by, they look up, as, you, as we would, when you're walking down a sunny street and all of a sudden the shadows hit you, you look up to see what caused that. They look up to see the shadow falling on them. And when they see this person in pain and agony and the two people next to him in pain and agony, their response It's to dehumanize them. And to demonize them. It's something we are tempted to. But it's not just, it's not just people who mock Jesus. In Luke 23, he tells us that the crowd stands and watches. They aren't participating. It's the religious leaders. They're the ones who are scoffing at Jesus. They're the ones mocking Jesus. The crowd in in Luke's gospel is just standing and watching. And I suspect that there were people who were curious and they just stood and watched. And probably thought to themselves, what is wrong with those people mocking him? We would never do that. But they aren't helping either. And there's something in us that thinks if we, with, if we just withdraw, that's better than mocking, and it probably is, but it's still not the call of the gospel. There's no doubt that not doing anything is better than, than doing the kinds of hurling insults of Jesus, but Jesus is pretty concerned about people who don't do anything, too. And in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about sheep and goats and how the kingdom will be divided eternally among those who receive his rewards and those who receive punishments. And he says the difference is what you didn't do to the least of these, you did not do to me. What you didn't do condemns you. There's something in us that just doesn't want to get involved. We don't want to take the risks. Quite frankly, we don't want to feel the compassion that Jesus feels. We just want to live our lives. And I mean, they're just standing there. I'm just minding my own business. But the gospel is never about just minding our own business it's about a world that has needs and burdens and pains and hurts and lostness and, and need to that we need to interact and and be a part of that and be a presence in that. In his book, Strong and Weak by Andy Crouch, which I would highly recommend to you if you've not yet read it, just a small book. But he's talking about uh, the. he's based on a, on a two by two chart that has four quadrants. And, and it's, it's about authority and vulnerability and by authority, he means the power, the influence, the wherewithal to bring about good in the world. And by vulnerability, he means being taking risks in bringing about good in the world. And he says... When you look at the first quadrant, this is the quadrant of Jesus. This is the quadrant of flourishing. And it is people who have high authority. They have, they have the ability to make a difference in the world. And they use that authority by, for good by choosing to be highly vulnerable. And Jesus has all authority. And what does he do with it? He goes to a cross. Ultimate act of vulnerability. Quadrant two is about people who have low authority and high vulnerability. These are people in the world who have very little ability or wherewithal or influence or power to make a difference in their own lives or anybody else's life. They bear a great deal of vulnerability. They are continually at risk. And these are the people, the high majority of people in our world, who we would say suffer. The fourth quadrant is in the opposite corner. And that quadrant is about people who have high authority and low vulnerability. They have the ability, the power, the influence, the wherewithal to do tremendous good in the world, but they don't want to take the risk so life just becomes about getting more authority, more authority, more power, more wealth, more influence. It's all about me. And there's no risk involved. And what ends up happening, he says, these are the people who exploit. And who do they exploit? The people who suffer. But there is that quadrant three. It's the quadrant of safety. It's low authority and low vulnerability. It's people who have said, I might have authority, but I'm not going to take it. I could exert, be vulnerable, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to be safe. And Crouch says maybe one of the best examples of this is, is, our, is our fascination with virtual reality. You put on the goggles and, and you fight battles And you save worlds. And you do all these great things. And you put yourself at risk. And then you take the goggles off and nothing's any different. You haven't done anything. You haven't really done... You haven't risked anything. And you haven't accomplished anything. But it feels like we have. But it's all facade. And I suspect that our greatest temptation is probably not to mock people in pain though we sometimes are tempted to do that, it might be that we withdraw from people in pain and we just stand and watch. I understand why we do that. It's The need is so great. The, the pain of the world, the lostness of the world is so big and so much it's overwhelming. And, and, you, and you can't solve every pain. You can't save every person. A month or so ago, during our missions conference, we had this Wednesday night gathering where we had different rooms with, with different ministries that we support and connect to. And so there was a room about ministry to Muslims and a room about a ministry in Russia. The Wycliffe Bible Translators had a room and we had a local room where we were thinking and talking about the needs of our, of our community and county. And I had two thoughts in every single room. One was, it's amazing the things that people are doing. This is awesome. And the other thought was, it's almost depressing how big the need is and how little difference it seems to be making. And I walked out with that, conf- that conflicted emotion. And then I thought, but these are people doing something. And we as a church are trying to do something. And that's all we can do. We can't meet every need. We can't solve every problem. We can't bring every person into the kingdom. But we are, re- And we're not responsible to. What we are responsible to are the people God brings to our vision. When the shadow of the cross falls on us, what do we see when we recognize that there are people in front of us who are living lives of pain and agony and separation from God, lost, broken? What do we do? How do we respond? I think this is why prayer is so vital. Prayer is so vital We need prayer when we are tempted to mock, when we're tempted to dehumanize our enemies, because it's awfully difficult to dehumanize someone we're praying for. The very act of praying for someone makes them even more human, more real. It's really difficult. And we need to keep working at that. I need to keep working at that to keep working at at praying for people who are needy and broken and people who are opposed to us and people we might be tempted to dehumanize and even demonize. But I also think prayer is vital for us about our, our temptation to withdraw. Because as we pray, we start taking on the heart of God. As we pray, we open ourselves up to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is always leading us to risk, and involvement, and compassion, and grace. And we live in the tension between compassion and justice, because there are all you know there are people we we can see it people who are simply receiving the consequences of behavior. And somehow we have to live in the tension between compassion and justice. And I think the tension is resolved when whether we're talking about compassion or justice, it comes from a heart of love. Because that's God's heart. Even in Jeremiah, when God speaks this word to the people, it's not vindictiveness. It's He's trying to awaken them. Vindictiveness is an attribute of the evil one, not God. Revenge is an act of the evil one, not God. And even God's justice, as we see that and interpret that, has the intent of saving, of restoring, of awakening And that's the line. That's the tension we live with. Compassionate justice from a heart of love. Here's the thing that struck me this week. I think our hearts might most clearly be revealed in the passing by moments of life. It's not all that difficult to treat someone with kindness when you know you're going to have an experience where you're going to need to treat that person with kindness. You plan for it, you prepare for it, you get yourself ready for it, and then you do it. It's not that hard to, to share the gospel with someone when you have prepared yourself and you know you're going to have this encounter and you're going to have this conversation and it's all geared to that and that's your destination and, and, and everything is in place and you do it. The difficult moments are when those opportunities arise unexpected. When we are encountered with people in pain, when we are encountered, we are encountered by people who, who we know are lost, when we are encountered by people who are struggling with life and we would rather just walk away or maybe dehumanize them. Those are the moments that reveal what's really in our hearts. Isn't that the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's a passing by story. A man is beaten and robbed and left for dead, and three men pass by, Jesus says. And the two of them that you would expect to stop don't, and the one that you would not expect to stop does. And Jesus gets done with that story and in essence says, you can tell what's in their hearts by what they did. That wasn't their destination, They didn't start on that road toward Jerusalem and say, I'm looking for a man who's been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. No. They're just going to Jerusalem. They've they've got something to do. They've got a place to be. They've They've got an itinerary to follow. And they are on their way, all three of them. And then all of a sudden, on the way, they pass by a man lying in the road. And in that moment, their hearts are revealed, and Jesus tells that story because a guy says to him, "Who's my neighbor?" And Jesus, and he asks, "Who's my neighbor?" Because Jesus just says the greatest commandments: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' answer is to love God is to love your neighbor and to love your neighbor is to have compassion and grace to people you pass by. We stand in the shadow of the cross and I'll be honest with you, there is a feeling of conviction about the times when I have walked by when I should have stopped. Times when I've withdrawn, when I should have engaged. Times when even if the words didn't come out of my mouth, they were forming in my mind of mocking insults. And the cross, in the shadow of the cross, you feel the conviction of that. And I want to run from it, to be honest with you. Get away from it. But I also know that in the shadow of the cross, I experience grace. Because when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, who's he really talking about? Who's the guy, whose behavior is the Samaritan modeling? He's modeling Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I have the ability to pass by and help and be agents of healing and grace because God in his mercy did not pass by us. And we've been changed. And he's continually wanting us to experience that changing grace that will enable us to know the privilege and the joy of being his agents of reconciliation and hope and love and salvation in our broken, hurting, lost world. It's at the cross that we know He doesn't pass us by. And it's in the shadow of the cross that we feel and hear the call to see and to be to do his work. Father, thank you. Thank you for not passing us by even though you had every right to. Thank you for giving us the privilege and the vision to be your agents in this world. Open our eyes to see you and to see others. In the grace of Christ, amen.